Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Slack. Slack brings all of your communication at work into one place. Create a new team right now at slack.com slash hangup, and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 18th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about Steph Curry, Kobe Bryant, and the end of the NBA regular season, plus the claim that NBA refs are biased against Jeremy Lin. We'll also discuss the big trade at the top of the NFL draft and the Rams' decision between quarterbacks Jared Goff from Cal and Carson Wentz from North Dakota State. And finally, we'll look at the NBA's decision to put ads on the front of its jerseys, and how many Budweiser Clydesdales of the apocalypse that represents. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book Word Freak and a Few Seconds of Panic. And you know it's baseball season, so could you throw in Wild and Outside, too? I love throwing in Wild and Outside, but you always demure, saying that it was an early effort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lesser Fatsis, I believe, was the statement. <laughs> uh, with us in New York is Mike Pesca. Most of the gist. And I'm from the lesser there, Antilles. What, what's the earliest Pesca effort that's available for online consumption? Online, that's interesting. I, rem- I think, mm, I know my first piece for NPR was, uh, was about this new HBO show called The Sopranos. And I interviewed this uh, guy named Gay Talese in his townhouse. Hmm. And uh, he exhibited no sexism towards me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a really long time ago. Um, yeah, nothing. Yeah. Your, your college, nothing online. Archives. I mean, my college my alma was mater a little... just posted its uh, its archives online. That's interesting. I, I'd like to know if the Oceanside Cider Press had my Pesca on politics column, wherein I endorsed <laughs> Dukakis over Bush, but said Bush was a qualified and quality candidate. We're lucky to have two such qualified candidates. I said. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're gonna have a live show in D.C. <laughs> Uh, Live show in D.C. Monday night, April 25th. Allie Krieger will be our guest. She's a member of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team and of the Washington Spirit of the Women's Pro Soccer League. Slate.com slash live, April 25th, D.C. You can get tickets. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to answer another question uh, from a listener. We did some of those last week. Um, And this one, it's going to be about why we refer to sports team owners as Mr. Fatsis. And Mr. Pesca. We don't own any teams. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen to hear which teams that Stefan owns. Uh, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash Plus, and you can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash Plus. Sports Illustrated's Tom Verducci called the last day of the 2011 baseball regular season the most thrilling 129 minutes in baseball history. A very precise minute total there. That was the year when both the NL and AL wildcard races came down to the final game of the season, and the Orioles came back to beat the Red Sox, and the Rays came back from 7 nothing down in the eighth inning to beat the Yankees. They were down to their last strike. It was exciting. The last night of this year's NBA season maybe wasn't as thrilling, but it was the most thrilling two and a half hours in the history of last Wednesday. Uh, Steph Curry scored 46 on 24 shots to lead the Warriors to their record 73rd win. Kobe Bryant scored 60 on 50 shots in his final game ever. It was the most shots anyone had taken in a single game since they started counting field goal attempts as an official stat. It was 15 more than his teammates took combined. It was a very Kobe thing to do. And after the game was over, he told the crowd, Mamba out, dropped the microphone in midcourt and immediately began selling Mamba out merchandise on KobeBryant.com, which was also a very Kobe thing to do. Not really a fan of that guy. <laughs> but I found couldn't tell. I found this to be a fantastic spectacle, and I must confess that I was, you know, I was off writing uh, my book, and I was staying in the Overlook Hotel. A couple people died. It turned out fine though, and I was that pulled night. Away. That I was Wednesday pulled away. I was pulled away, and I was watching these games on my phone because I had no internet. Like flipping back and forth, and Kobe won out. Kobe pulled me away. From watching the Warriors, who I actually love, to, you know, watching them set this amazing record. So, you know, all glory to Kobe, I guess. Wait, do you mean people died Wednesday at the Overlook? <laughs> and you care I mean, about Scamman basketball? Crothers, I mean, Scamman Crothers, you? you know, was in the in the maze and, you know. Oh, my Lord. An incident happened. So. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. Kobe Bryant, what did you make of the last game? 
I well, you know, sixty points on fifty shots. That's not an abysmal EFG. He uh, he got to the line a lot. I think if your whole career is fifty points on sixty shots, I mean, you know, if you could get your team one hundred twenty sixty points on fifty shots, that's six, sixty points on fifty shots is even better than fifty fifty points on sixty shots. Yeah, yeah, it's sixty points on fifty shots. I mean, if you could get if you could hoist up a hundred shots a game, you'd probably win. So that's it's really all about pace. <laughs> I think that Kobe went out <laughs> as Kobe goes out. And uh, when chasing 73, I guess the drama was baked into it uh, to beat the, the Spurs those two games. So actually the most dramatic game of the quest for 73 because they had to essentially be perfect, right, after they had that inexplicable loss to the – well, it's not inexplicable. The Timberwolves scored more and they threw the ball away. Mm -hmm. So they had that loss and then they're on – a uh, trajectory where they have to win all their games. And it was that game in Memphis where they were down by, I think, 10 with uh, four or five minutes to go. That was the most exciting game. You never know when the most exciting game is going to be. Usually in basketball, the most exciting stuff happens at the end. But in the case of if what you cared about was the quest for 74, it was something like the pre-ante penultimate 73, game. 73, Mike. Yeah, quest for well, That's how much I care about the quest for 73. I have my, my, my mindset <laughs> on 74. But yes, so then when the Spurs game at San Antonio turned out to be a little bit of a dud, uh, and the Memphis game, the last game of the season, was just a blowout. Of course, this frees us up to pay attention one last time to Kobe going out in the most Kobe-esque way. But watching that Kobe game was like watching bad reality television. I mean, you, you sort of are attracted to it, even though you know you shouldn't be. The worst part of it, Josh, and you not only alluded to it, but you pretty much you know hammered it home in the piece that you wrote for Slate that took you away from your other work was that this reflects Kobe's complete and total egomania. I mean, a more humble athlete would not have gone into this game with a desire to take every fucking shot and basically hijack the entire team and the game, obviously meaningless game. They had won what 16 games going into the finale of the Lakers. Um, there was no reason to care about this win or lose. It didn't make any difference. They're a lottery team. But the ego involved in sublimating everybody else and accepting this attention and this focus and the fucking ball every time they come up the court was the cobiest thing that could have happened. Well, it was great when he was making those shots at the end and it, uh, defied, it defied belief that he made that three, uh, you know, mostly because he was just uh, clanging everything earlier in the game. But it was fantastic to watch in those last few minutes and i think the counter argument is that it made everyone happy it's not like everyone would have been happy watching that game if you know jordan clarkson had shot 18 times and d'angelo russell had you know shot 22 times that's what people wanted to see and kobe's fans are insane like kobe true believers and acolytes i think are the craziest subset of fans in sports i got this one email oh, come on. i got Alabama fans, you're fans of the I got SEC this one email, football, dude. <laughs> I got this one email where the person wrote, if Kobe hadn't been sidetracked by the sexual assault case in right. Colorado, That's he would have like gotten... That's Williams in the Korean War. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say the <laughs> oh, exact sorry, same thing. Dude, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> like... Uh, they're acting like <laughs> this, like you know, little <laughs> if Tiger interregnum. This happened. little, this little interregnum in Colorado, like they he served they, their country. This person, <laughs> this person put like it deprived him of like eleven straight all defense teams. It's like that. That was the big takeaway from the Kobe Bryant sexual assault case. Uh, all defense team deprivation. And I will say, I will say this: we talked about Peyton Manning when that sort of came up after a long time in the past. If you want to feel really horrible about the world, just go read the Kobe Bryant sexual assault documents that are on Smoking Gun. I would encourage every, you know, put the dog away for a second, put, stop the car on the side of the road. If you like look at those documents, it'll blow your mind. Yep. It, I did last week for the first time in a really long time. It made me incredibly sad. Do you remember it going on? Do you remember as it was happening? Were you paying that much attention? I yeah. think so. I yeah. was covering sports then, and it was just the the inevitability that this girl this accuser could hold i mean was going to crack was going to get bought off was going to was going to somehow you know take a settlement just the inevitability the pressure 
It was unbelievable. Stefan, I can't believe you're saying that. This is the closest you've ever got to crusty old sports guy take, where you seem to be implying, this is a terrible thing, but Bernie Sanders does this, surrogates seem to be implying <laughs> that you're saying that he thinks he's bigger than the game. But one great thing about basketball is since it's only 12 players and since it is less stodgy and, mm-hmm. and more black and less, uh, you know, hidebound, that basketball embraces fun stuff like that. And the, since the game didn't well, what's matter... what's the line what, between fun stuff, though, Mike? And I think this is not whatever... It all be about you. Whatever I mean, it is, this sure, is on the other side of that line. could have 30 shots. But if you don't hate Kobe... 30 shots, and we still would have said... Oh, my God, Kobe took 30 shots and scored 40 points. But think that about... That was a great uh, farewell, and he could have come out with right. two minutes in the game, and it still would have been all about him. There was something excessive <laughs> and contrived about taking five out of 80, 50 out of 85. Do well, the math. But that's only because you don't like Kobe. What if Kareem had done this his last game? What if Jeter in his last <laughs> game... What if Jeter played every position? That would be fun. <laughs> point. Right? Yeah, that would have I mean, been, been fun. Yeah, and given... Well, and, basketball and on, is the With most... the surfboard, he was given by the Rays. Exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, rock, the rocking chair. Yeah. Mariano Rivera's rocking chair. Well, basketball is the most distortable game, right? And the Warriors have distorted it in a good way. Like, Steph takes these crazy shots, and I just kept tweeting during this game, like, if Steph had taken 50 shots, he would have X number of points. And there's actually like a mathematical rationale for Steph Curry taking even more and more and more and more shots. So he's actually hurting his team by not being as much of a ball hog. Um, And this is all very tenuous. Steph Curry hurt his ankle in game one of the playoffs against the Rockets. I think if he doesn't play for the rest of the series against uh, Houston, the Warriors will still win with no problem. I think that Dwight Howard and James Harden will just like bonk heads together. I think James Harden, I don't think he's like necessarily a bad dude, but he's going to, I think he might ascend to the top spot for me in terms of players I don't li- I like to mm. watch the least after Kobe re- retires. I think that Harden and Dwight Howard are both just people that I do not oh. so need you, to see play basketball. So you hate ball hogs who drive, not ball hogs who, who hoist. Shoot. Correct. Okay. Got it. See, foul have, foul have, uh, drawing is not something that is aesthetically pleasing, and that's but you must like Westbrook because he's a little more efficient. love Westbrook. Okay, yeah, L- love Westbrook. Right, but don't you have? Isn't there? Don't you have an internal bias in favor of left-handed basketball players? I do. <laughs> Are you <laughs> because left-handed? I'm not left-handed. I'm not left-handed either. I like watching left-handed because it seems like they're doing something wrong. Huh? You know what okay, I like? I like left-handed goalies in hockey. Cap. The, the, the Flyers <laughs> yeah. goalie is one of the few left-handed goals, which means he catches with the right. But when you get down to it, like, why logically would a goalie, if you, why would you use the stick with your dominant hand? Uh, why wouldn't you use the glove side with your dominant hand if, you're, if you don't grow up playing baseball? Like, obviously, the, you have to throw with your dominant hand. But wouldn't the glove side depend more on extra agility and the stick side how much i mean the stick handling is mostly blocking they're not doing a lot anyway I'm there just must be a german out. noun for having a per- the perfect segue to the next topic b- before mike pesca talks about left-handed goalies for two minutes <laughs> you know who else draws a lot of fouls jeremy lynn so uh he scored nine points in 25 minutes in the hornets game one loss to the heat in the eastern conference playoffs um nothing particularly exciting or of note vis-a-vis Jeremy Lin fouling in that game. But um, there's a fan-made video called Jeremy Lin, Too Flagrant Not to Call. Great title. Um, that shows him getting whacked across the face by the likes of Kobe Bryant and Carmelo Anthony. And it also, you know, going along with this video, there was a letter that was sent to the NBA throughout Lin's six years in the league. We've continuously witnessed him as the recipient of numerous hard fouls with unnecessary and excessive force by other players. In these cases, the referees either didn't make the calls or made incorrect calls. The NBA res- actually responded to this video, which was surprising, saying that it's not statistically significant, that there hasn't been a flagrant foul called against Jeremy Lin, that all these fouls were reviewed. And there have been arguments going both ways about what this means, if anything. So, uh, Mike, what did you make of the video and the league response? The video, I think of like making of a murderer and making of a murderer was 10 hours or at least probably more than 10 hours, 10 parts. And I said to myself and I said on the gist, it seems really compelling, but we basically saw one side of the story and you owe it to yourself if you are, if you hold yourself up as a fair person to try to get other information or at least know not to jump to conclusions. With the, with the Jeremy Lin video, we saw, you know, how long was it? Eight minutes? 
we saw a few minute video and we didn't see. So what you don't see is other fouls against prominent players that weren't called. What you don't see is fouls against Jeremy Lin. Well, there weren't too many flagrant fouls that he got, but maybe in past seasons he had. There's so much you don't see. So this was a good attempt. I'm not going to say it started a conversation. In some ways, it started an immediate jump to racism, which I don't know that was that compelling in this case. I think it was. It, it, it's interesting uh, that it empowered a fan, a uh, 48-year-old stay-at-home mom working six-hour nights to put this together. That's possibly the most interesting thing in this video. But, you know, probably it also. So what did that do? What did those? What did that cumulative whatever it was, 20-something hours worth of work do? Probably got Jeremy Lin one or two more foul calls down the road. That's a lot more than any other fan has done. Well, I, th- I think this is the case where a project that somebody's doing at home with no expectation that it's going to go viral or anything will happen to it, like gets elevated to this stature that the person never intended. And so we can't really hold it up to the standard of they didn't do this or they didn't do that. This is like, as you said, just a woman who thought that Jeremy Lin. No, I don't blame the person putting it together. I I blame the, yeah, concluders. But the interesting thing to me is that you can kind of torture the statistics in any way that you want. And Tom Haberstrow, who's an incredibly smart guy who writes for ESPN, often for Insider, said that, you know, Jeremy Lin has had 800 some odd, 813 fouls called against them, the most drawn by any guard without drawing a flagrant. And so he argues, oh, well, that's significant. Um, then the NBA says, you know, Jeremy Lin's driven to the basket 1,537 times and hasn't drawn a flagrant foul, but Reggie Jackson has driven 2,000 times and Tony Parker more, Tyreek Evans, Ty Lawson, Kyrie Irving, Victor Oladipo have all driven to the basket more and not gotten flagrant foul calls. So you can just come up with numbers that make your case either way which I think suggests to me that there's not an obvious answer to here. I do think we have demonstrable evidence that there's been prejudice against Jeremy Lin and many facets of his life, like not getting seen as a basketball player when he goes to the arena, like always the arena security is always demanding to see his ID. Like, I don't think it's crazy to suggest that there's bias against Jeremy Lin, but it's it's just not a open and shut case either way. Right. So where do you want to find your bias is the question. And I think the what this raises to me is that fans are sensitive to this, obviously. Jeremy Lin has a very big following in the Asian American community and overseas. I mean, the video was dubbed into Chinese and viewed over a million times in China. That's probably like 10 million by now. This was four or five days ago. Yeah. Um, so, so the, like one out of every like one uh, one million Chinese people. Now that that's the numbers are probably wrong there. But go ahead, Stephen. So for fans who feel aggrieved, there's an outlet, and whether the bias is real or whether the bias is undetectable, it doesn't really matter. There's a perception among fans that Jeremy Lin hasn't gotten a full fair shake in the NBA from the time he came in, but now as a player, now that he's playing a lot. And that all is that what really matters to fans. I mean, it's the perception and the ability to then take your grievance, air it publicly, have the New York Times write about it and have the NBA respond to it is kind of remarkable. And it's remarkable. I think the, the most remarkable part is that the NBA took the time to put together this data and rebut or respond to the video. Well, and I think that says a lot about the NBA. I think that's a great thing. That's the kind of engagement that we sort of yearn for from these big corporate entities that don't feel responsive all the time. Well, given the nature of the game, there are just so many bad calls every game. It would be insane if Jeremy Lin, if you like look through all his games, you're like, wow, like the refs have gotten it right every time with <laughs> this guy. Like, I guess there's no video to make here. The thing that makes this a potential issue is that flagrant fouls or the possibility of a flagrant foul, those are the things that you can actually go and look at and review, stop the game. And there are clearly cases where if, you know, they didn't end up calling, you got to at least review when the guy's like nose starts bleeding and he's getting clocked in the face. The thing, as Mike said, every guy in the league could be getting clocked in the face and they're not reviewing it. So... I think we've established that referees, you know, blue calls against Jeremy Lin. Like, wow, shocker. But we just don't have that. Well, shocker and shocker, too, that human beings may have inherent biases that are not obvious and not detectable always. Yeah, anti-Victor Oladipo biases. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
Our sponsor this week is Slack. Yes. Uh, Slack is a me- messaging app. I knew it app. was going to be. Psyched. It's a messaging app. Do you have Slack in the who's the sponsor pool? Yes. Jessica? Love Good. Slack. We're talking about our Slack. <laughs> well, we've got a big... We got a big poster board in here. Mike had the Slack uh, Square. Uh, uh, I'm not uh, sure how that poster yeah. board would work, but had Mike these. had the Slack Square. That's right. Um, Mike and I use this uh, this app to communicate on occasion. Trade I think emojis. The, the last productivity emojis. The last communication that we had was you on Slack posting some hate mail directed at me. You didn't write it. You just found <laughs> it. <laughs> right. So Slack has done customer service. Surveys and they found, um, based on their clients, that they reported a 32% productivity increase. And my ability to just send you that hate mail <laughs> instantaneously, that's got to be worth at least 32%. Keeps me so on my toes, yeah. If you haven't used it, Slack is a pretty awesome tool. It allows you to consolidate a bunch of different things that has capability like email and like instant messaging and like Skype. And you can have them all in one tool and you can have your whole, uh, you know, work crew on there and you know we use it to trade assignments to have conversations about various things including hate mail that is received by me directed towards mike and if you're interested in this if you think you might uh, want to use it you can visit slack.com slash hang up and create a new team and get a hundred dollars in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan 32 percent productivity increase slack.com slash hang up So the newly Los Angelesified Rams made big news last week. They traded up with the Titans to get the number one pick in the first round of next week's NFL draft. The Rams also got a fourth rounder and sent Tennessee the number 15 pick in this year's first round, plus uh, fourth round and sixth round picks, plus their first and third rounders next year. So every analytical tool says that the Rams got the top pick, but the Titans got the much, much better end of the deal. Because accumulating draft picks is the best and cheapest way to acquire talent in the NFL. What's interesting here is that the Rams took advantage of that maxim in 2012. They acquired a fat load of young NFL talent by trading Washington the number two pick in the draft so Dan Snyder could get his, quote, franchise quarterback, unquote. The best part of this, though, was that they had this all worked out, the Titans and the Rams, on Wednesday night and didn't announce it because they didn't want to distract from Kobe Bryant's last game. But just imagine, you know, the news comes out, maybe the crowd's murmuring. Kobe is a little bit distracted. Mm-hmm. He passes the ball only to shoots 49 times. Like the rubber, the butterfly effect here, it's staggering, not just affecting the Rams and Titans franchise, but the NBA record books as well. What do you think of this trade? Um, it's happened a bunch of times where the number one pick has been, uh, traded let me jeff george russell maryland kajana mm-hmm. carter orlando pace michael vick and eli manning sort of where the number one picks acquired via trade In reverse order good good bad <laughs> meh, bad what were the first two what was pre take me pre kajana carter disaster. jeff george jeff not george. great great hair yeah. russell maryland good he, he, he last, was name. Good. Good last yeah. name good last name good last name good all right, so the Titans now have, I just want to read all these numbers. Their picks in the draft, 15, 33, 43, 45, 64, 76, 140, 193, 222, plus extra first and third rounders in 2017. That's a lot of picks. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Could be a good thing. Might not be a good thing. Why? I, you know, I, I buy the argument that this is not terrible for the Rams. They had acquired the surplus of picks in the RG3 trade. Um, that worked out pretty well for them. I don't have the names in front of me, but I believe those players all play for the... Janoris Jenkins. Mm. Janoris Jenkins. Is one of them. So they give back some of these picks. They already have the youngest roster in the National Football League. They need a quarterback. They have just moved to this big city. They're going to be playing in a big, beautiful new stadium someday. They would like to have a quarterback that is good. It might not be this quarterback, but they're... I can't remember where I read it, but somebody actually made the argument, you can't go to Los Angeles and have Case Keenum, Case be, your Keenum quarterback. be your quarterback. The NFL is filled with Case Keenum. <laughs> yeah. Just They want to pick somebody new Dude, to have a big Ferragamo name and do something once, uh, different. Uh, wasn't he once the face of the L.A. franchise? Yes. <laughs> he was. So was Joe Namath. That was the same the year. Yeah. So why wouldn't they? Uh, sure. Why not? You know, 
the NFL players are a dime a dozen. Guys walk in and out of training camps constantly. That's why you need to pick a lot of them, right? <laughs> well, that's why you need to pick a lot of them. But when you've already got a lot of them who are under the age of 26, you might as well try to pick some big name that may or may not work out and then hope that you can fill in with free agency because you're building a beautiful new stadium and players are going to want to come to Los Angeles. Yeah, I would say that this is probably, overall, uh, a lot of picks for a guy or one slot is not the way to go. So are there special circumstances? You know, the fact that you don't have a quarterback, that you need a quarterback, that these quarterbacks are being projected as, you know, potentially very good quarterbacks, unlike certain years, that plays into it a little bit. But then the third thing, uh, maybe the third thing is LA going to LA. I don't think that that's a huge deal. If anything, you can't go with Case Keenum. I think that the the new love of an LA franchise can buy him some time. But although that's an argument that works both ways, right? Hey, what Mm -hmm. better time to have a young quarterback who might need two years to develop than when you're already going to have some goodwill baked in? Though, I think this is like the third side to the fourth hand, though, usually when you have a young quarterback on the bench, no matter where you are, fans will have hope. That guy represents hope. So you don't need a special circumstance circumstances of going to a new city. Then there's the other thing of, you know, if a quarterback, if this guy is good, not only is he a good quarterback and you feel good about yourself and he's actually paying dividends for your team, the salary slots of quarterbacks are crazy. So right now the Jets are going through this thing where if they, uh, they, they might have to pony up a lot of money for Ryan Fitzpatrick, it's probably not worth it, but they might not have better options. Then again, he might not have better options. But if you look at the you know potential of trading up for one of these two quarterbacks, the salary that would be owed him is so beneficial to the team. It's such a distortion Absolutely. that it makes they rather have a Brian Hoyer plus this guy's salary slot than Ryan Fitzpatrick. Even in the near term, that doesn't make sense. So when you add this... And it's not, it's not just Brian Hoyer plus the salary slot. Slot, Mike. It's Brian Hoyer plus the salary slot plus the hope that that salary slot will be a 15-year or 10-year NFL Yes, yes. Player. So I'm sorry to bring it to the Jets, but how it applies to the Rams and the Titans is for all their special circumstance, the reason that you take a huge long shot on a quarterback who might pay off is that fans will forgive you and that if it works out, you're smart and that if it works out, the salary implications, that's how you win a championship with a really cheap player at a really important position to wit Russell Wilson. A couple points. There's a good ESPN piece kind of looking at the analytical side of this that had a sentence that I found uh, illuminating. Team decision makers are generally overconfident in their ability to identify players who will turn out well, and they often overvalue the top picks in the draft. And there's this interesting combination as an NFL personnel person, as a general manager, where you have to have extreme arrogance to think that your draft board is the best draft board and that your guys that you somehow have this advantage over the 31 other teams with their huge scouting department and that you can pick guys better than anyone else at the same time teams like the patriots and i think the rams recognize this as well you have to know that that's just not true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to believe it, but also understand that it's not true and that you have to have self-doubt and you have to understand that you're going to make mistakes and that you need to acquire all of these picks just to allow you to get the kind of tonnage that you need to succeed in the NFL and get guys who are just because of how this collective bargaining agreement works, get guys who are cost controlled and are on these low salaries mm-hmm. so that you can And I think also does young players perform better because they're less injured if we're being realistic here. But as we've discussed, the Rams are better positioned than any other team in the league if you are going to make a move like this to do this because they do have such a young roster and they have acquired picks in the past. So good for them. The point that you make about the draft itself, I think, is a really good one, Josh, because the way front offices operate, there's a pattern of invincibility, right? You have to be... Supreme, that's the whole message of the NFL. We know exactly what we're doing. This game plan, this strategy is the, is the best one. We know that this will work out, but it's all undergirded by paranoia and insecurity. So the panic in moving up in the draft is, oh my God, the, the one guy we really, really want and we are so confident about won't be available at the 10th pick or the 12th pick or the 15th pick. Therefore, we need to offload a boatload of assets in order to acquire that because we are so self-confident, we are so self-assured that that is the athlete, the player that we need to have. 
Well, the part that's fascinating about this, and there's a lot of kind of subterfuge and just flat out lying that that happens, but it does seem like the Rams aren't 100% sure whether they're, they're going to take a quarterback, but whether they're going to take Jared Goff from Cal or Carson Wentz from North Dakota State. And you would imagine that if you're going to make a move like this, that you would know the guy that you're going to take. Because even with all the kind of caveats that we've laid out and how we kind of understand this trade, if they don't get a really good quarterback, it's going to be a failure. And, like that much is, is obvious. And it's crazy and that so, the Cleveland Browns are sitting there at number two saying, my God, look what they gave up for a guy who we might get just based on who they decide mm-hmm. not to get. Like that's what our pick is worth. Maybe to someone else it is. You know, there is an analogy between what Les Snead did. And by the way, the disparity between a dorky name and an interesting looking guy has never been truer than with less need. Like think about what he would like now. Look him up. Wow. That's an interesting looking guy. He looks like an extra from the USA series silk stockings. Anyway, um, it's an analogy to Sam Hinkie, not the tanking on purpose part, but the, is it true that you're smarter than everyone and you're better at drafting? Or is it more true that what you need is the tonnage and you need the picks? You know, needing the picks or wanting the picks or getting the picks, that's why Tennessee did the smart thing. But no one would say anything other than Tennessee, who didn't need a quarterback, did the smart thing. But what the Sixers had to do was tell themselves, you know, we know enough to get some good picks, but they probably don't. But here's, it's like with uh, picking stocks. You probably can't beat the NASDAQ. You probably can't beat the market. But what you have to do in order just to play the game is at least have enough money to buy an index fund. You have to at least get in the game or else you definitely won't beat the market. So that's what they're doing. Like they know they probably can't outsmart the market, but unless they take a chance at it, they have no chance at all so i think that for all these reasons i mean it didn't work out for hinky because he was trying to lose on purpose and the nfl doesn't make you do that let you do that but i think that there's an analogy there well i think, think less need also quoted abraham lincoln falsely <laughs> yeah. in his announcement about the let's quickly go through the wentz versus goff thing and wentz is is fascinating because there's never been a guy outside the top division of college football or actually there there hasn't been since 1974 Ed Tall jones let's not forget him, taken at the number one pick who's outside of, of the top division of college football. Stefan, you sent this around. The five quarterbacks, quarterbacks who've been taken, who are outside of the top division since 1970, all made the Pro Bowl. Joe Flacco, Steve McNair, Ken O'Brien, Phil Simms, Dan Pastorini. All really good quarterbacks. All yeah. Ken O'Brien was not a really good quarterback. <laughs> he did make the Pro he Bowl. He was taking over Dan stop, Marino, stop who was in the top division. Stop, <laughs> stop jetsing all over the a terrible segment, choice. Mike. Okay. <laughs> so Kevin Van Valkenburg wrote a profile of Wentz for ESPN magazine and noted in the lead that he ate a 14-ounce ribeye, waffle fry nachos, and two pretzel bread rolls with cheese sauce in one sitting. So put that in one, ca- in one box. And what did Berkeley Boy eat? <laughs> kale. Kale salad. I'm really obsessed with the pro football focus scouting reports on these guys. And the one that they wrote – and they're like very pro Carson Wentz and they're like – He's an amazing athlete, got great arm talent. He can run. He's like a weapon in the running game. But got he's long fingers. He's everything that you want in a quarterback. He's got the big hands, 10 inches. <laughs> everything you want in a quarterback, dot, 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 caveat, ellipsis, except he's not accurate throwing the ball. <laughs> that, that doesn't come up that much. That made me very scared. But he's got 10 inch hands. Well, I guess maybe his hand needs to just reach out further and just hand the ball to the receiver. So what you need is a hand that's large enough to like make the 10 yard out pattern just by itself. I Carson based, Wentz. Based on that small sample size, I'd take Carson Wentz too. Just the whole division one double A thing. It makes you look smarter. If you're taking <laughs> that's true. the one double A guy, you must know something as opposed to the obvious Pac-12 guy. I think right. you're right. I think, and it's not just quarterbacks. If you look at the position players who were taken from the lower division schools, they're pretty good and they have a good rate of return. First round uh, picks from... Uh, little schools. I just have to make this note. I think it's true for FCS and one double A. Let's not include the division two because that takes out Ken O'Brien because Cal Davis was division two at the time. (laughs) Our stats are cleaner. We've got a couple more live shows coming up that we wanted to uh, plug the political gab fest live in Atlanta coming up at the end of this month. And there's also one in DC in May, that should be very fun. Uh, Jacob Weisberg of the Slate Group, the chairman 
and his brother Joe Weisberg of the TV show The Americans, Man Behind the Americans. They're going to do an event on Reagan, the Americans in the 80s in D.C. at Sixth and I Synagogue. You can get tickets to both and get information on both at slate.com slash live. Last week, NBA owners approved a proposal to place ads on the front of jerseys. This wasn't a huge surprise because Commissioner Adam Silver has been talking about it for a long time. But given that the conversation has been going on for a while, it seemed possible to the likes of me that the league wasn't ever going to actually go through with it. But starting with the 2017-2018 season, there will be a two and a half inch by two and a half inch patch on the left shoulder of the jersey for what the league is calling a three-year trial run. In a statement, Silver said jersey sponsorships provide deeper engagement with partners looking to build a unique association with our teams, and the additional investment will help grow the game in exciting new ways. Wow, I'm, I'm stoked about that. He also added that fans can opt out of the ads by becoming NBA Plus members. <laughs> they can also get exciting bonus segments on NBA podcasts. That's NBA.com slash Hangout Plus. Estimates are that the jersey patches could raise $150 million in revenue for the league. I don't want to sound like a reactionary here, preface reactionary comments. I don't think this is like uh, the end times, but it does make me sad. I don't like it, Mike. Well, obviously, this will sully the game and will let fans (laughs) know that players are being paid. This is all for money. Mm -hmm. It's all for money. Here's a Yahoo Sports headline. NBA jersey ads raise the obvious next question. What do you think the obvious next question is? Go. <laughs> Will they change the team names to being that's a good names? See, that's, I think that's more obvious than the next question. What do you think the next question is? The thing that we're really worried about, Stefan? We're really, really worried about whether... College basketball players will get paid. I know. I'm really worried about that. Here it is. The, ob- huh. the obvious next question is... Left-handed goalies. The NFL next. Because once the N- NBA goes, <laughs> then the NFL goes, and then the whole no. game is is done. No, 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 We've given it away. No one will watch the slippery slope. No. Yep. I'm worried yeah. that every patch is just going to be an image of Kobe Bryant shooting the ball. The NBA may change its logo to that from Jerry West. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me, actually. Kobe Bryant shooting the ball. Ugh. So... There is like the dumb reactionary take, and Stefan, you sent around the best slot, you know, meaning the dumbest, mm-hmm. a guy in the Orlando Sentinel saying, imagine this headline in 2038, <laughs> Orlando Amways beat San Antonio Big Macs oh. for NBA title. Because yes, obviously in mm-hmm. soccer, this has been going on for 50 years, and now it's the mm-hmm. Real Madrid Amways versus the Barcelona Big Macs. Well, in the um, Philippines Basketball League, it is actually, but we don't live in the Philippines. We don't. <laughs> it's actually been longer in, in international soccer. Um, it started in the 1950s with a team in Portugal putting a, a sponsored name on the front of the jerseys. It really took off in the 70s, 60s, 70s. Um, and Thanks it for is Jägermeister. Sec- Jägermeister? Jägermeister, yeah. Um, and it's second nature, right? I mean, do we care that uh, Leicester City is sponsored by a duty-free company? I mean, is that solid their run to the... Premier League title? Oh, well, my no, God. because we're it's used to terrible. it. We're used to it. Well, we're going to become used to this, too. We're used to Nike and Adidas logos on our American jerseys. If you had the choice, if you could vote on it, you would... Sure, <laughs> if I had the choice, I would take the swoosh off the jersey, too. I, I love the purity of only having one brand name on the front of the jersey, the brand of the team that is trying to sell the jersey and curry favor with its fans and develop a fan base. I mean, that's a brand, too. They're all advertisements. Yeah, but I just feel like the no not big deal. shirts and skins. I just feel like the no big deal argument and the idea that this is everywhere and does mm-hmm. it solely. That, that just, it, it's a little bit too accepting of the premise that we should just have corporate branding everywhere and that everything is sponsored and that we shouldn't care and we should be happy about it. Obviously, advertising, you know, allows this podcast to exist. It allows Slate to exist. But we don't. There are places where there isn't advertising and there are places where there is. And there's a long tradition in sports and the four major American sports of not having ads on jerseys. And I think that's a good thing. If you believe that a shoe company's logo isn't an ad and if you also believe that a team name isn't a brand. I'm not saying that those things aren't true, but there aren't 
ads for McDonald's or LifeLock or whoever else. I mean, I don't know. There was a little league team in my town that was sponsored by Cornell Carpet Cleaners. Stefan, <laughs> you're that. That's not what we're talking about. But good point. My little league. I always wanted to be in a little league where the teams had names like the Cubs and the Yankees because the it, it, the whole team was only the name. So I played on Molino Oil when I was in first grade. I played on Temple Avoda when I was in second grade. I played on <laughs> Temple Avoda. Yeah, it was Did oil you guys versus. Crush? Well, Temple of Voda. well, when Molino Oil played Temple of Oda on Hanukkah, <laughs> it went eight games. <laughs> it was an eight-game series. Let's play eight. Uh, Let's play eight. Um, I agree with more Stefan than Josh, but I think what we're doing is deciding who, what enemy to attack. So Josh has uh, propped up the shibboleth of consumerism. Is that? <laughs> The thing that mm -hmm. we have to attack, and Stefan has propped up the shibboleth of traditionalists, the dumb takes selling the game. And I, 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 I take no joy in it. You heard that statement, or you read that statement by Adam Silver, who's normally a guy who says n sensible things. There is no way to s put together a group of words about why you, you, an unbelievably rich league. It would be one thing if it's the WNBA where they really, really need the money. Okay, and um, and have been doing this since yes, two thousand. An unbelievably rich league who just wants to get richer. There's no assortment of words other than we'd like the money <laughs> that doesn't make you sound like a dork or a dick for doing it you want the money i don't know josh picked some of the words i mean some of the other words that adam silver used make some sense in terms of the future present and future media landscape of professional sports which are that people are watching less live tv outside of sports silver noted people are watching fewer commercials because they don't need to this will be an important opportunity for companies for connecting directly with their consumers. He's right. If I'm skipping through commercials, I need to find ways to charge to persuade advertisers, corporations, that I can charge you a lot of money to be part of the NBA. Well, and it obviously companies... makes sense from the NBA's perspective. I don't think anyone's you know, making account. Obviously, they're going to want to generate revenue. But I think it's fair to say that if, if you're, you're saying that this is purely additive, that they could live without this, that this is about consumerism and greed and we need more money. And they're I never saying, said that. Well, you said that. No, you did. You said it is consumerism. No, your straw man implied it. it implied yeah. greed. Your straw man did imply it. And if they have to find ways to replace what they are anticipating will be declines <laughs> in revenue. They have to do that. I don't have a problem. Wait, wait. But oh I saw, God. and I think I've said this on the podcast. Break before. up the banks, man. Jesus. I, I think I've said this on the Stephen, podcast. What you're saying before. is, is, uh, it's just a long way of saying they want more money isn't good enough. What they have to say is the reason we want more money is sometime in the future we might have less money, so we're girding right. against that by getting more money right. now. In other words, it you want more money. Point. It's also a terrific But it's why everyone wants more money because there might be a time where we don't have enough money. Look, there are many, many ways that the NBA could raise revenue. You sent around this image of a D-League team that sold the rights like on the court to Chihuahua, like the Chihuahua, Chihuahua Mexico tour, Tourism Board. Yeah. And that is no le more or less ridiculous than putting a corporate sponsor on a jersey. We're like laughing and mocking the idea of, and rightfully so, of the idea that it'll be like the Orlando Amways or something. But they could do that and would get a lot of money to do that, would get a huge amount of money. The New York which Red Bulls would, are a team. Which would help offset any potential future mm -hmm. revenue losses when consumer brands ex less engaged internet.com mm -hmm. you know whatever you said so leagues make choices about these are the things that we're going to do um, and these are the things we're not going to do because we're not just about revenue maximization because at some point it'll turn off fans or will be perceived as greedy and for a very, very long time, the NBA made the decision that this is not something that they're going to do. And I don't think we should accept it as something that is like inevitable or that had to happen and that they're already a Nike swoosh on it. So anything else they put on the jersey is fine. And the fact that like fans of Premier League teams walk around with like Qatar Airways, that like that is something that is not only like, okay, but we should cheer. 
that none of that seems correct to me. <laughs> Nobody said we should cheer that. What I think we're saying or what I'm saying is that there is an inevitability to this. And I think that the NBA is, makes a calculation. The NBA isn't unaware that some segment of the fan base is going to be offended by the idea of sullying these traditional uniforms, which I agree. Like, I wouldn't want to wear a Celtics uniform. That well, they're I've not going to sell them with the patches, allegedly. Uh, someday they will. For now. For now. Someday they will. But the opportunities here are pretty great, Mike. Um, so the, <laughs> the D-League team for the New York Knicks, it says Knicks. And then underneath the Knicks, it says Chase for the bank, which is their sponsor. And then think what you could do with the Knicks, the, the real team, the NBA team. Knicks, Chase. 35 wins you could put right under there. I think that would be an excellent <laughs> respectability. Excellent yeah. Respectability. The, uh, a new owner. Who is it? The Fort Wayne Red Ants sponsored by Orkin. That's sort of a self-abnegating one. But I do think that if it gets to the point, who knows, but if it gets to, if you've, you've allowed the camel nose under the tent. So it might get to the point where the spot, the team names falls away and the sponsorship is there. And I have to say that does hurt the English Premier League. They might not think so, since it's so ubiquitous that Chelsea could just say Samsung and everyone in England knows that if you walk around with a Samsung jersey, you're really walking around with a Chelsea jersey. But in America, do we know this? I, I mean, I know the D-League is exploding in popularity and it's kind of a cool insider thing to walk around in a shirt that says Malaysia, but what you're really saying is, you know, Cardiff City. But I think that that's been a little bit of a block. I mean, that's not how logos and that's not how branding is supposed to work. And I think the reason Jay-Z made a Yankees hat bigger than a Yankee can is because it said Yankees, because it didn't say Samsung. If I could have one last thought, I thought Paul Lucas was smart on this because he is not just a uniform guy. He's like an advertising guy, branding guy, writes for ESPN. And he noted, just like you did, Mike, that if you... Stefan like didn't pay attention to the Yankees for 25 years and just went to Yankee Stadium in the future, watched a game. You would know who to root for because they were the guys wearing the Yankee uniforms. And that's really all that for a huge proportion of fans who like teams but don't really follow the game day to day. That's how they identify the guys that they root for and care about is just – they are the ones who are wearing the appropriate jersey. And I think that leagues do recognize that and understand that. And this is just a two and a half inch by two and a half inch patch. But Mike's right. Like once you start replacing the team name with a sponsorship, like you might actually lose if we want to get McKinsey on this problem. I don't know, like if you can look at the potential revenue that you lose or what some, yeah, something ineffable that you is. lose. But yeah. you do lose you do lose something. I'm not arguing that you don't, and I'm not supporting putting the names of companies on the fronts of jerseys. Oh, that's what you're supporting. You don't realize it yet, but that's what you're supporting. I'm saying the inevitability should not surprise us at all and that I don't think that it will erode fan loyalty or ticket sales in any way. And that's what teams are concerned about here. You know what, Josh? If, if rooting for professional sports is, as per the Seinfeld construction, rooting for laundry, at least have the laundry be clean. <laughs> so for Afterballs, do you want to do the Scarborough Black Death Vodka, Stefan? Sure. This was from a mental floss story on the history of uh, Jersey sponsorships. The English Football League banned the sponsorship shortly after it was announced in 1990. The company is wholly reputable. Scarborough chairman Jeffrey Richard told reporters following the announcement, it may be just a case of overreaction. It is perhaps understandable when efforts are being made to improve the sports image. So, Mike, what is your Black Death vodka? I don't like the NBA playoffs first round now that it's a best of seven game series. I mean, on the one hand, you have the teams that are going to win that will win. And I like watching Golden State play. So I guess we get a few more games. But really, we should really... If they could have clinched this in three instead of four, fine. But I was just comparing it to the NHL playoffs. I like basketball. I like the NBA more than the NHL. I don't know if I like basketball more than hockey. Sure, I do. I play it more. I understand it more. I could name the majority, vast majority, vast majority-ish of players in the NBA. I know, oh, I don't know, 
double-digit number of players, maybe high double digits in the NHL. I like the NBA a lot more. And yet I, Charlotte and Miami are playing, and I'm like, why are you torturing me? Oh, my God, you're torturing me for possibly seven games. And the way they play it out with little breaks in between, not little breaks, sometimes big breaks, for two weeks I might have to watch Charlotte and Miami. Whereas I just tune in to any NHL game, it's, it's much more dramatic. The Rangers and the uh, Penguins have taken a 1-1 series. The Islanders have taken a 2-1 lead over the Panthers. Now, I live now two blocks from the Barclays Center. And I was thinking about this, and in the neighborhood I moved into, I moved into actually after the Islanders, because I've only lived there for a couple weeks. But there was, you know, a lot of consternation about not just the Islanders, but the Nets and all these people descending on essentially this one small part of Brooklyn and taking it over. And that happened. That absolutely happened yesterday. Every bar, every restaurant on my street was just lousy with Islander fans, right? These mooks from Long Island, 99% white guys, 91% wearing number 91, John Tavares jersey. But you know what? I've been to that Islander game where all that was just taking place in the Nassau Coliseum parking lot. The way I look at it was... They didn't ruin anything. They were The bars were full. I mean, it's a bar. You don't want a full bar. You want an empty bar. So they visited upon my little hamlet, my little neighborhood, this amount of good cheer that was just formerly in some woe-begone parking lot in a suburb. I say good. I say the excitement of NHL playoffs is all for the good. And you could tune in. The great thing about hockey is you could tune in for any five minutes, and unless it's already a 3 nothing game, but even if it is, there could be a comeback. That's a meaningful few minutes. You know, in basketball, especially with these seven-game series, man, I mean, three-quarters of that unless the game is close at the end, who gives a damn about Charlotte against Miami? And I'm not just picking on that series. In fact, we're, we have to... It sounds like you are. Well, we have to sit through. <laughs> we have to. I understand if you're a fan of the team, you want your team to win, granted. But what is compelling? Everything the, everything the uh, Warriors do is compelling. So I'll give you that. But what is compelling about every other series in the East? I was kind of interested that the Celtics and Hawks game wound up being close and I thought the Celtics were better than the Hawks. That's fine. But it doesn't matter until we get Cleveland in the East and then we get that Spurs versus Golden State series in the West. I guess someone could come up and surprise Cleveland and then, you know, lose in four to whoever wins out of the West. But this year especially, we care about two series. We care about the Western Finals. We care about the NBA Finals. And along the way, the matchups are so uncompelling and every individual game is so uncompelling. And now they've made the first round round seven game series where you don't even have back-to-back games it's just from a i'm sure they're making money and i'm sure fans of the teams like it but as i compare it to the nhl the nba playoffs are worse (laughs) and who cares about that charlotte miami series a billion chinese people are watching to see if jeremy lynn gets fouled yeah they care i don't really agree with what you just said but i'm gonna i'm gonna move on in the interest of time uh stefan what is your black death vodka well, baseball's Hall of Fame announced last week that it will display items from that exhibition game in Havana between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cuban national team. According to a story in the Albany Times Union, uh, Hall of Fame president Jeff Idelson collected the mementos himself and he brought them home in his carry-on. The artifacts include a cap worn by a Cuban outfielder, a ticket to the game, Cuba's lineup card, a couple of game balls, and, quote, the Columbia blue jersey worn by Rays manager Kevin Cash. Pretty cool. Except for this, there is no evidence that Kevin Cash wore that jersey or any jersey in Cuba. I watched the game. I watched Cash deliver the lineup card to the umpires. I watched him shake President Obama's hand through the screen behind home plate. And I looked at photos and videos of the pregame ceremony and the game itself. In every instance, while the Rays are decked out in that lovely Columbia blue with buttons and logos and names and everything on the, on the, on the shirt, Manager Kevin Cash is wearing a dark blue short sleeve T-shirt that dangles below his crotch. Can I interrupt for a second? This season on Serial. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Cash is among a group of uh, managers who can't be bothered to finish getting dressed for the game. Buck Showalter in Baltimore has been eschewing a jersey for a windbreaker and whatever else for years. Joe Madden in Chicago wears hoodies more than jerseys. John Gibbons in Toronto likes those three sizes, two big short sleeve half zip windbreakers with a tummy pouch big enough to hold a pheasant. Terry Francona in Cleveland never wears a jersey. He was actually confronted about it by MLB's fashion Gestapo during a game in 2007 
Francona swore at the guy and later said he avoids extra layers of clothing due to circulation problems. Gibbons and Cash, Gibbons and Cash, that'd be an excellent 70s cop show, Gibbons and Cash. They met at home plate on opening day and they were wearing triple XL licensed apparel covering their guts and backsides. They looked like two beer league softball players negotiating whether they were playing for one round or two. The ass length rectangular cut of many of today's managerial warmups makes these guys look less like Casey Stengel and more like Turtle from Entourage. I can hear people saying, but it's dumb that managers wear uniforms at all. And I talked to Paul Lucas, well, to Paul Lucas mentions on this podcast of uh, the UniWatch blog. He pointed out that baseball managers began wearing uniforms because the person running the team on the field typically was a player, whereas in football, the coach was an owner or an executive too, like George Hallis of the Chicago Bears. Same thing with Connie Mack. He wore a uniform when he was player manager of the Philadelphia Athletics in the 1890s, but he put on a suit when he became part owner and manager in 1901. We haven't had a player manager since Pete Rose in 1986, but managers wearing a uniform makes sense in that, unlike in other sports, they routinely go on the field during games to conduct business. So if you're going to wear the pants and the socks and the cap to take out the pitcher or hit fungos or throw batting practice, you can wear the jersey. It's sometimes helpful for fans to be able to identify the manager by name and number, especially if you're in, say, Cuba and your name is Kevin Cash and your career slash line is 183, 248, 278. After shaking Cash's hand, (laughs) (laughs) it was pretty low. After shaking Cash's hand, Castro probably turned to Obama and said, who the fuck was that guy? Uh, Cash, Gibbons, Madden, Buck, Tito, the rest of you, if you're going to waste a perfectly good uniform number, wear the shirt. You're not watering the lawn or riding a life cycle or watching UFC with a Coors in one hand and a remote in the other. If into his 80s, Don Zimmer could wear a jersey that unabashedly sheathed that eight months pregnant gut, you middle-aged dugout jockeys can wear one too. Put on the damn jersey. Respect the game. Oh, my God. That's what I say. Respect the game. Josh, what is your Black Death Vodka? There's a new uh, Ken Burns documentary, a two-parter on Jackie Robinson, which I have uh, not yet watched due to my stint at the Overlook Hotel. I've watched it. But uh, there's you watched it? Yeah. Good? A little slow, but good. The parts we knew, we kind of knew. So Ken's Bur- Ken Burns is who we thought yeah, he was. was. So Brad Snyder did a piece on Slate about Ken Burns exploding the myth that Pee Wee Reese had put his arm around Jackie Robinson. This is a myth that gets demythified in the documentary, but Brad Snyder says it actually probably did happen. Um, so that was an interesting uh, back and forth there. You should check out that piece. But as I was kind of looking around this stuff and looking around uh, Jackie Robinson Day, which is every April 15th by Major League Baseball to mark Robinson's debut, I was looking at some baseball history stuff, some Negro Leagues history stuff, and I found this very cool project that I didn't know about called the Negro Leagues Baseball Grave Marker Project, which was started in 2004 by an anesthesiologist named Dr. Jeremy Crock. Stefan is nodding his head. Saber. These dudes. These dudes are awesome. They, they do their thing, man. They are the best. So they've installed a bunch of headstones for Negro Leaguers who were in unmarked graves. And the really cool thing about these guys, and we have a friend, Peter Morris, who does this kind of stuff, um, this baseball history excavation, is that it's not just raising the money to pay for these headstones. It's actually doing like crazy amounts of genealogical research to try to track down players who've been forgotten. And Dr. Jeremy Crock in a piece by Alan Schwartz from 2010 in the New York Times says they're great ballplayers who don't deserve to be forgotten, but they have been. A lot of these guys, by the time Jackie Robinson made it, They were way past their prime. It was too late for them. And not having a marker on their grave for people to remember them only made it worse. And so this New York Times piece, Schwartz was on the scene for the unveiling of the headstone for a player named Big Bill Gatewood. He um, was in an unmarked grave for decades. And he was a pitcher and manager in the Negro Leagues, gave James Bell the nickname Cool Papa Bell, died in 1962 was six foot seven, 240 pounds, threw a no-hitter when he was 45. There are just so many of these amazing guys uh, from the Negro Leagues with these fantastic stories. Um, and it's just great to 
see that this project, these people are, you know, systematically trying to remember these guys. And since it's gotten a lot of publicity or a decent amount of publicity, they've raised money from the likes of Don Zimmer. That's for you, Stefan. The headstones cost $700. Um, the money is generally raised by members of uh, Sabre, as Stefan said. But uh, Larry Lester, who is one of the founders of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, he has the best website going through this. It's LarryLester42.com. We'll also link to it on our show page. Cool project. Mike and I uh, went on this visit to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, which has a lot of amazing baseball graves, which folks should go to. So I'm pro grave, pro marking graves for legendary baseball players. I'm going to stake out that position. Anti-Jersey ads, pro cool headstones for Negro League players. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Buy tickets to our live show, slate.com slash live. It's on April 25th in Washington, D.C. We'd love to see you there. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating. It'll help us with the subscriptions. Help us take down the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast. Become a fan on Facebook, facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Nathan Brackett, executive editor of Rolling Stone. I'm excited to say that our podcast, Rolling Stone Music Now, is now part of the Panoply Network. Every week, me and the writers and editors of Rolling Stone take an inside look at the biggest stories in music, talk about what we're listening to around the office, and answer your burning questions, like what is emo? So check out Rolling Stone Music Now on the iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts.